Lord, we want our lives to be totally yours and the great assurance that only you can give. We're on a journey, Lord. I pray may we follow you all the way to heaven. So wherever anyone is today, Lord, I pray speak peace to them, carry the burdens of their heart. If they're rejoicing, Lord, may we rejoice with them. If they are heavy-hearted, may we care. Help us in those ordinary parts of the journey, Lord, where we're soldiering through to not give up. Give us a window, Lord, of your presence in our lives. Help us just to see what you're doing. And bless us now as we open the word. Please open our hearts. You won't force us, but you will speak to us. May we not callous our hearts against that voice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is the last of three sermons on the Renaissance of Adventism. In the first sermon, which is entitled Make Up Your Mind, I showed how through the book of John, Jesus gives decision-making moments to people, but his voice is very easily heard. We studied the book of 1 John at our recent ministers' meetings, and it became very clear that there is a witness. At the end of time, Jesus is vindicated because the voice of the Holy Spirit speaks. On the other side of heaven, very sad thought, but during those thousand years of looking at the records, we're going to see how many places God spoke to people where they ignored him. It won't be that someone is lost because provision won't, wasn't made. It will be the refusal to let God be God. So whether it was Nicodemus, like we saw, or all the way through up to Judas at the very end, when Jesus, he told Nicodemus, you'll have to be born of the water and the Spirit. Nicodemus had rejected the voice of, of John the Baptist, who was Elijah. Nicodemus had refused it. He clearly heard the voice of God in the appeal of John the Baptist to repent. And I took you through almost every chapter of the book of John showing you the same thing. Jesus gives you a chance to respond to the voice. It's in the Word primarily, but it's also in the application of the Word to your life through the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at the componentry of rededicating time, talent, and fellowship to God. I talked with you about a converted pocketbook, a converted date book, and a converted Facebook. If someone were to look at your ledger, would they know that you were converted? Would they know? If they looked at your portfolio, would they say, this person is a Christian and they believe Jesus is coming? If they looked at your calendar and saw how many priority appointments you had with God's people doing God's work, would they say, this person's date book is converted? And if they looked at your fellowshipping, whether it was online or with the people of God, would they say, these people's social component, the Facebook of their lives, is converted. I'm afraid without those books converted, there'll be no heaven-bound assurance for us. I can't convert myself, but the amazing gift of Jesus, sitting at the feet of Jesus, thinking about the power of the blood, the great focus of heaven, I shared with you how God has put the expansion of civilization throughout the universe on hold. The house is divided. Satan has made an accusation against God. God is not populating other planets right now. God has taken the fullness of the Godhead bodily and poured it into the life of Jesus Christ and sent him here. And what can stand against that kind of love except a resistant heart? But friends, let's go back to the first sermon. You've got to listen. 
And I'm going to tell you, God is working through His church. The church is not the problem. The church is the solution. It is the one object. It is enfeebled and defective as it may be. It is the one object of His supreme regard. It's composed of people like you and me with our flaws, which is why we have to socialize together and come to know each other in the spiritual realms because love covers over a multitude of sins. You'll grow with me while I'll grow. I'll grow with you while you grow. And this morning, because this isn't really terribly hard to figure out, God in His infinite complexity, I mean, I pointed out in the last sermon that it is now statistically provable, the astronomers have made it clear that they know beyond the shadow of a doubt there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the seashores of this little world. But both the psalmist and the prophet Isaiah say he calls them out one by one by name and not one of them is missing. We have nothing to be afraid of except our own humanity. And this morning I want to talk with you about the last component of Renaissance. So if I individually drew into this divine intimacy with God, if I learned to hear His voice and I followed Him, my peace would increase, His fruitfulness would be to His glory. If I came together and focused my time, my money, and my presence, there's no doubt that the church would experience a renaissance. And last week we had this card that uh, Greg was referencing here. I'm going to reference to it again. I'll faithfully return an honest tithe. Some may not be doing that. Folks, if, if you serve the infinite God of the universe... And he said, I am stuck. God can't be stuck. Oh, yes, he can be. Stuck by you. Stuck by your decisions. I'm stuck because it's my nature to pour out blessings. <laughs> but you're keeping me from doing it, at least like I want to. Special covenantal blessings. Yeah, the sun came up today for everybody. The grass is green today for everybody. The air is breathable today for everybody. But there are some special things he wants to do, and he's stuck when we refuse to acknowledge that the little bitty paltry portfolios that we own are all His. Returning an honest tithe is the difference between a special bless, blessing or a pronounced curse. It's sad. Offerings aren't any different. You've robbed me not just in your tithes but your offerings. Sister Betsy is what we called systematic benevolence. A percent of my income goes to the church budget. A percent of my income goes to Michigan Advanced Partners. A percent of my income goes to the world budget. And if I want to give more on top of that, I do. But I don't rob Peter to pay Paul. In the middle of this card was an invitation to move. Some of you may have been doing systematic benevolence. God prompted with an invitation that maybe it's time to move your giving by a percent. Not down, for sure, but up. The Hebrews gave a quarter of their livelihood. And they were profoundly blessed. The fourth thing on here was that I will be in God's house. You're here right now. Some of you don't go to church here regularly. You're here for special events. We welcome you. We're glad you're here. But I will find myself in God's house. He will find me at His house. You ever throw a party but nobody will come? Seems like there's a parable that even Jesus talked about. The honor of your presence. Isn't it strange that God would relate to you like that? And lastly, I will give a year of my life in service for Christ. Yesterday morning, we dropped my youngest child, Julie, off at the South Bend Airport. 
between the smiles, the tears, and the hugs, and the prayers, all right there, just before you go through security. We waited till she was through, waved goodbye, and last night about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock our time, she landed in Honolulu, where dozens of other student missionaries are going to get their orientation for a year of service. I would love to see all of our teachers always talking about this with our elementary age kids. Give God a year of your life. Let's bring life back into this Adventist church. This kind of commitment would create a dynamism in a secular business, let alone in a church. And God said the sons of this age are more shrewd than the sons of light, but let it not be with us. And so how do you have a renaissance of a church? Yes, make up your mind. Draw into this divine intimacy. Yes, focus your life, time, talent, treasure, socializing power on God and His people and then on the ones you're to reach. And this morning, you need to know a little bit of English because you've got to go from a preposition to a composition. Now, I never really enjoyed those sentence diagramming. It must have been a lot of other people who didn't either because I don't think they do much of it anymore. But I, don't say amen, but I learned, I learned something there. All right, take your Bibles and turn to First Second Chronicles chapter 7, our scripture reading. It's important that you understand the conditional nature that a preparation, uh, preposition can create. Second Kings chapter 7 is a divine encounter. Solomon has sought the Lord and the Lord has responded. It is the dedication of the temple and God comes down with a special promise that is not just for Solomon but those who are far off. In 2 Chronicles 7, looking at the verses there surrounding the building of the temple, we find these words. Verse 11, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and he said to him, I've heard your prayer. Listen, friends, we're serving a God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. You wake up in the middle of the night, you want to talk to God, He's listening. But if God spoke back to you in the darkness of the night, if out of the inky blackness as you're laying there in your bed with so much on your mind can't sleep, God spoke and He said, Ron, I've heard your prayer. Go back to sleep. I don't know that I could have a gift any better And yet this morning, I'm going to show you the gift is already yours if you meet the conditions. I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Friends, this church, this village, Seventh-day Adventist church on St. Joseph Avenue is a special place to God. It was dedicated when it was built. It was dedicated when it was paid for, and it was dedicated when it was remodeled. That's three times, and you're gathered here today for a worship, a divine worship hour. We prayed that the words that I'm sharing would come from heaven. We've sung prayers. We've listened to invitations. We've been given an opportunity to give This is a place. It's not to be a place slightly frequented. It is to be a primary place. When the doors of this church are open, God's expecting His foot soldiers will be here to advance His cause, to be revived and to grow. I've heard your prayer. Verse 13. There's a change. If. There's our preposition. 
If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. Now I'm going to pause right here because there's too many Christians today who think God's too good to do those things. No. Our God has a goal. His goal is to make sure we don't fritter away the divine opportunity of transformation. And when our lives are on the super highway to hell, He doesn't come along and say, let me put a little turbo juice in your gas tank. As a matter of fact, He says, here's a speed bump, here's a speed bump, here's a speed bump. There may be somebody listening to me right now who's running over speed bumps, continually crying out to God as if God isn't saying something to you. Have you ever thought about slowing down and doing a little thinking and a little praying? It's not God's job to bless us into perdition. The blessings come to be a blessing. But if we wander from the path of life, especially in a marriage covenant with God, redeemed, restored, committed to by Him, don't think He's going to make it easy for us to continue a superficial, apathetic, or running away from Him. If I shut up the heavens, no rain. If I command the locusts, eat what's there. And if I send pestilence among my people, and if, preposition, my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Well, you know, I have found this promise to be absolutely true. Now, I don't like to say it, but I can't change the facts. And if it offends somebody, I have to let God work that out with you. But every single district I've gone into on my own has been sick and suffering and needed healing, including this one. I once inherited a church where the two previous pastors had both apostatized. They hadn't just left the ministry. They had left the Seventh-day Adventist church. I was 28 years old. It was the Kokomo church. I can tell you when I would drive down there at nights, for prayer meetings sometimes, I just felt like the life was being sucked out of me. This is the price tag of pastoral leadership. It's not the fact that we don't get off work at 5 o'clock, which we don't. It's the fact that the emotional dynamics and demands made upon us, which is why pastors must preach for conversion because you cannot lead unconverted people and you cannot even sustain yourself without conversion. I'd rather you be mad at me on the front side and get over it with God and love me on the back side than you not be able to be led by God when I'm called to be a leader for God. But every single time and with every single church, at least a church in the district, when people decide that they will follow the simple directives of heaven and lay their lives on the altar individually and corporately, I have never seen God not show up and pour out more blessings than were ever dispersed. We should not be closing schools. We should be opening new ones. In a few places we do. We should not be shutting down churches. We should be opening new ones. Listen, you think I'm making this stuff up. We just had the executive secretary from the North Pacific Union at our ministers' meetings. And he told me he was surprised at how many churches were sending financial requests on 
to the union to pay their insurance bill. Yeah, oh my, I heard that from somewhere. You ought to say, oh my. And when he put the statistics up on the screen and I could see the graph of our North American division over the last 10 years, when we get down to the last year and it's six-tenths of a percent, where would we be without our ethnic churches and our own children being baptized? I'm afraid we might be saying more oh my's. Now, I'm here to tell you that if the North American churches, including this one, are too proud to come together and humble themselves, we might just slowly have to watch the life ebb out of us. And like a person whose circulation gets worse and worse, we might have to endure the corporate amputations until eventually even the main trunk of the body, like a Berrien County where there's over 7,000 Seventh-day Adventists, until eventually even the trunk looks sick and suffering. Everywhere God shows up, there is life and vitality and hope and power. Amen? And it's no different for us. But God doesn't show up to be an uncomfortable guest as we do our own thing and brush the principles of holy living and holy focus and vision off to the side. God doesn't come along to go for the ride. Remember when Joshua was taking over and he's there and, and, and the commander shows up? Soldier. Joshua says, are you for us or against us? God says, you've got your whole perspective all out of whack. I didn't come for or against you. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And all of a sudden he realizes, I'm for him. The message to Joshua was, you don't turn to the left and you don't turn to the right and nobody will be able to stand against you. And if I wasn't in my middle 50s and hadn't watched this over and over again, I could not stand before you and be confident. But I want to tell you something. There's not a dollar this church has spent to aid anybody, whether it's in Brazil or Montana or El Salvador or the prisoners in the prisons around these few states here. There's not a dollar we've spent to put a young person in Christian education that has ever been a waste and hasn't been repaid. And by the way, having enough money in the bank is not the measure of success, by the way. It just happens to be the lowest common denominator by which we can tell whether or not we're almost dead on arrival or doing just a tad bit better. If my people, but you're too busy and you don't need it and you've been thoroughly trained that you are a Seventh-day Adventist customer. You've signed up. You've got membership benefits. But this is not Costco. This is the family of God. And we are called to press together for those who have not yet been invited in. And as I write in my little bitty article in the newsletter, I'm a happy, sad dad. Well, I got just a tad bit teary to watch my 19-year-old girl go halfway around the world. But I want to tell you what. She is joining her daddy to work for God, and I can't be much happier. You want to find the way? Help somebody else find the way. You'll find it. Our young people are mighty to serve. Once their hearts are captured by the living Christ and once their commitments are made to His body, the church. And this is where we're at. We're in a position and a place where we sometimes tacitly acknowledge to our kids that, yeah, the church is the problem. Somebody didn't talk to you right. Somebody didn't like how you were dressed. Somebody made a comment. Somebody didn't make a comment. Could we grow up and get over it? Could we start realizing 
that God has given us a privilege, and if it isn't turning out how we want it to turn out, let's make sure it turns out better for somebody else. Our journey has been so self-focused by the world where everybody is a customer that we bring it over into the church and we become the best critics and we cannibalize that which is meant to be the fruit of life. There is no social solution to the problems of our church or this world. It's not a generational problem, friends. It is a spiritual problem. It would be like saying, my kids saying, Dad, you know what our problem is? You. Excuse me? I'll be humble enough to say, I am part of my kids' problems. But I'm also down at the foundational level of all of their successes. I love them. And when they're my age doing my job, they'll see a whole lot better than they might see when they're in their late adolescence or their adultish moments. Yes, the job of the prophets is not easy. Especially when false prophets proclaim falsities that feel good. So if Jesus lingers another decade and I get to finish what would be a normal career... I am planning on everywhere I go as I teach, preach, practice, and administrate the principles of heaven that I want to be on the winning side, not on the losing side. And as long as I'm with Him, I'm with God, it's going to happen again. So I don't want to give anybody the wrong idea. I'm going to keep preaching stewardship of life and relationships and education and social power and presence. I'm going to keep preaching those things till I die, which is a lot sooner than it was when I started as a 20-some-year-old man. But nothing's different between you and me. I stand up here regularly. I'm just a child of God. It just happens to be he put a megaphone in my hand and I'm supposed to use it so that you can be there with me and I can be there with you when I do see Jesus face to face. That's the point. We do not need to languish on the vine. But as we imitate and take our cues from apostate Protestantism or from the secular society, we cannot help but be. We have a prophet in our midst... We have the spirit of prophecy in our Bible study. We have the shoulders of sacrifice, which Brother Greg was referring to, that we are standing on many generations over. And if there is a challenge in the church today, it is an absence of conversion. It is not a problem, at least when we reflect on the history of the first hundred years, a problem of method. God doesn't need better methods, E.M. Bounds would write, in power through prayer. He says God needs better men, better people. And if there's something about this renaissance of Adventism that I want to resonate in your minds is that you could get by with preachers, but you can't get by without prayers. You can get by without sermons, but you can't get by without groups of people gathering to pray. There'll be a day when the preachers are locked up and the members are left. It'll be up to people who never have seen a paycheck from the Seventh-day Adventist church. It'll be in homes and vineyards and orchards. It'll be in valleys and caves. 
But you can live without preaching, but you can't live without praying. And it's not individual prayer I'm talking about here today. When God says, if my people, he's not, he's not suggesting. This is a corporate public moment. When Moses is on the side of the mountain and God says, I've heard the cry of my people, there is something about people pressing together to pray that transforms the human relationship and the divine. And when we don't come together to pray, we should expect to get what we get. But what a sad thing. Now, I know why people don't pray, and I know why people don't pray in groups. I know why people don't come. Because it's exceptionally uncomfortable to do something in public you don't do much of in private. And it's also exceptionally uncomfortable to actually have to invest in another person. It's uncomfortable to come here and actually press socially together. It's uncomfortable to have God talk back. Divine intimacy isn't really what a lot of people want. I'm not surprised they're missing out. The best thing I have is the friendship of Jesus. I get something thrown on my shoulders. I either go for a walk or go into a private place to pray. But I'll tell you what, when I'm sitting on the wall in Montana and the sun's going down and I'm watching the master artist paint a beautiful picture on the northwestern sky of our country. My heart thrills to be used by God to be a part of His work. I want to draw near to Jesus. But I know if you've been listening and feeding, if you've been going to the wells that are polluted by this world, you don't really want to do that because you don't want God messing with your CSI or whatever else it is you watch. You don't want God that close. You don't want God to talk to you and say, I'd like for you to stop doing that and start doing this. The appetites of our lives, the idols of our age. But none of them compare to the glory and the beauty of the presence and the friendship of God. Day 39. Last year. On day 39, the Holy Spirit came down. Now listen, if you want to talk to the least sensationalistic person in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you're talking to him right now. I almost never call anything a miracle. I don't talk cheap and superficial about God. But on day 39, last year, I got the testimony direct. The Holy Spirit came down so powerfully on my son that he was convicted that if he didn't make a decision for Christ now, he might not ever make a decision. He asked his friends to pray for him. Now maybe your kids are still young enough to where the circle of their influence still got a lot of you in their orbit. But I want to tell you something. The magnetism of the earth, the gravitational force of this evil world is strong enough that even though as you get backed out of their orbit, the world looks to close in. And you know what the world's goal is? Get that spin getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Pick up speed where they can't break out of it. And there's a crash landing of their spiritual person. I'm here to tell you, I've seen a few miracles in my life. There is no miracle bigger than the Holy Spirit coming into a person's life 
and breaking the shackles of self-centeredness from around the heart of someone that is a pretty respectable citizen, but they are not a respectable citizen of heaven. And God knows it. And when the Holy Spirit shows up to take a prisoner from Satan and make him a prisoner of hope, this is a miracle. I don't know what kind of problems you're facing, but I know this. When the Holy Spirit came down on those 120 people, they had been there for 10 days praying with each other. It was a corporate movement. When Peter was in jail and they knew the church could be destroyed because James had already been beheaded and Herod only put off Peter's execution for a few days because it was a Jewish festival, the church thought it was going to die. Read Acts of the Apostles. They thought the church was going to be destroyed. And if they could get James and they could get Peter, the only one of the first three, well, actually, there's just a few left. And then it's on to the ordinary people. And the church got together and they started praying. And God took and did something we could not hardly imagine. He woke Peter up, miracle number one. And then he started letting Peter out of the prison without anybody knowing it guard after guard after guard and finally when Peter knocks on the door where the prayer meeting is going on Rhoda gets it and everybody else says you're out of your mind he says no I'm not they're so jubilant he has to tone them down when we look at the storyline of corporate prayer we realize God wants to do something go to the book of Matthew chapter 18 but some of us are going to miss out. Matthew 18. It's a powerful chapter. We throw it around when it comes to conflict resolution. Well, I'm here to tell you that conflict resolution is bound on one side by an amazing promise that we're passing up. Verse 19. Again, I say unto you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two of or three have what? What's the next word? Where two or three have gathered. There is something about gathering. There is never just two people who gather. There is always the presence of Christ when two gather in His name. Where two or three have gathered in My name, I am there in their midst. Now I want you to know something. When the Scripture says in verse 19, where two of you agree, the word that's used there is the word symphoneo. It's not hard for you to see the stretch from the Greek to the English. God is looking for a symphony of prayer in regards to certain things. And the first verses above this narrative are the verses of conflict where people won't listen to you. They won't listen to two or three. They won't even listen to the church. That's a pretty hard-hearted person. But you run into those kinds of situations that is a call to prayer. We all know somebody who said, I'm done with the church. I'm not going back to the church. Or I'm done with God, whatever they say. In that context, with sin-hardened hearts, with rebellion on the outside, and rebellion on the end. Jesus says, when two or three of you gather and agree, I'm there listening. One preacher has said, God needs three things from us. He wants us to be together. He wants us to see together. And He wants us to agree 
together. I suspect if we were more corporate in our prayer meetings, we would have unity of feeling, thought, and action. We could be fighting less and enjoying the fruit of the sweetness of God's presence in our midst even more. Now, I love good music. My wife stayed home most all the years. Our kids were little. We had almost no money. We had plenty of money. We just didn't have a lot left over. In the process, there were some special moments. Now, we got a hold of the Circle City Theater, which was where the Indianapolis Symphonic Orchestra played. We got the tickets we could afford, which were the musical version of the nosebleed section way up in the third mezzanine. We came and we found our seat. We were all dressed up. It was a date. It was Christmas time, maybe a birthday celebration for my wife as she has a birthday close to Christmas. And I want to tell you, when that conductor stepped onto the podium and he raised his baton, and all those instruments came up. When that fantasia on green sleeves began to play, it was as if we had been lifted up into the presence of heavenly angels and we sat there mesmerized by the beauty. One discordant instrument could have destroyed its beauty. They had practiced a lot in private. You pray all you can in private. You take Jesus with you. Let your breath be like prayer. You know Jesus individually all you want, but I'm going to tell you there are some burdens so big God says, I'm not fixing this one until they all agree because unity is at a premium for God and it is the final and highest order that He is actually in a group's midst. Do you think it's accidental that you see fragmentation and animosity and polarization in our society today? It's not an accident. It's perfect fruit of the withdrawing of the Holy Spirit from this earth. That's where we're at. And when you see a group of people come together who are sweet and harmonized and together, that will become one of the highest evidences that something really unique is going on here. Because I know she's a Democrat and he's a Republican, but you know what? They are the sweetest, most beautiful people. I know he's for this and she's against it, but you know what? There is such a harmony in their lives. They have a divine discretion, a divine hand guiding them. Their hearts have been touched. Their mouths have been healed. There's fruit. God never intended that we should give the doctrine before we give the blessing. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You should find out how good it is. You should smell the fragrance before you eat the food. And you should know the joy of Christian fellowship before you're taught the doctrine. That's how God always intended it for work. It wasn't like, did you know the seventh day is the Sabbath? As they argue down to the final degree, have you never read Colossians? No, I'm not giving in. It's not. Did you know the Seventh-day Adventists are to be the sweetest, most fragrant, most harmonized people as we come to the end of the age? And it's going to be a witness that nobody can argue against. Amen. Friends, if my people will come and lift their voices collectively in a symphony of praise, I want to promise you what's going to happen. That set of parents who didn't think Christian education was important, God's going to double down on them, and God can change their mind where you can't. And our schools are going to have kids. That son or that daughter that's wandered for God and loves to have earbuds in their ears all the time and can't take their eyes off the screen, God can interject himself into that situation. That parent 
who is thinking that they might just throw everything in. They've had enough of that lousy spouse. God can put a healing touch on that marriage. That job that you think is going to end, God can give you a different or a better one. But I'm here to tell you today, friends, there are burdens so big that God wants to see us like those Amish people. You've seen that video? Look at it this afternoon. Where they, they actually surround a barn. They all have a handhold. And on a certain signal, they all lift together and they carry the barn and I'm not talking little barn. Amish build big barns. They carry it from one foundation to another place by hand. You see, if there's going to be a renaissance of Adventism, there's going to be a symphony of prayer that ascends to heaven and God is going to listen to it and there will be no doubt but that there must be a response. They must have what they earnestly are seeking. But it's not happening as you toss your little prayers out over here and I toss mine over there. There are calls to prayer that bring us together. The Holy Spirit came down on 120. The, the building was shaken as a result of harmony and togetherness following the lead of Jesus who said, don't go out and try to win the world until you've given me full permission to rule in your hearts. A symphony of prayer, a composition so beautiful that all without any knowledge of Christianity can say there is something sweet and marvelous in the heart of those people, the hearts of those people. So friends, what is your commitment? You're too busy. We're going to start 40 days of prayer here in 10 days. Oh, you don't know anybody. Well, that's only proof that this sermon series was needed. You need to find a person, not your spouse. You need to actually make this a journey of social renewal and investment. And while you will not gather every day these phones ought to be used so that at an appointed time you meet with someone else. And for 40 days we hold up the hardest problems of our lives before God, the hardest problems of our church before God. And we say, God, we believe. Help our unbelief. But we've got to have you do something. Nobody's ever going to tell me that day 39 a year ago was not a miracle and I'm praying for more and I don't know who my prayer partner is yet I pray with my wife a lot it's not going to be her but I want to tell you the person I prayer partner with last year we're close 40 days of talking about some of the most serious it was a man don't pray with somebody the opposite spouse we became brothers as I dealt with something very challenging. So what are we going to do? How many seats in the orchestra are going to be empty? I know you're busy. Listen, friends. You know, Paul went into brag mode every once in a while. I talked about this last week. He bragged about the giving of the Macedonians or the Corinthians to the Macedonians. Every once in a while, Paul went into that mode where he told about you know, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and all that. I'm not going to do that. But if it was appropriate, it would be good for me someday to tell you what busy is. Until then, I would ask you to do this. Ask God if He doesn't want you in the symphony. 
I love to listen to solos. When I was at Indiana Academy, I enjoyed the band, and every once in a while, other bands would come through. No offense to our academies, but how can that compare to the orchestra over here at the university? <laughs> One of the privileges of being in this community is the amazing music. The question is, will we be part of making it? And will God give us a testimony? So as tired as you may get, day 39 will remain my testimony. And now I have a friend and a partner and an adult child. I didn't know how much he needed what God gave him. But for my life, I've been praying. But it wasn't until my wife and her prayer partner, Pastor Knott, were praying together. It wasn't until that focus came down so God said watch this powerful little device I have in my hand weighs a few ounces if I wasn't a preacher I'd want to be a music conductor you know have you ever heard them when they tap everybody's tuning their instruments but there comes a moment in time when the conductor does this. <laughs> the most single popular orchestrated piece of music in the world, Beethoven. It's time for us to make melody in the heart of God. It's time for us to take our spot in the orchestra and agree, be together, see together, agree together. We're holding an evangelistic series here starting on Monday night, September 23, and I know God's going to show up partially because dozens and dozens, hundreds of people are praying for it. Friday of this week, the 36-foot-tall redwood statue of Daniel 2 is going to pull into Bering Springs. It's going to be an amazing moment. I'm hoping to set it up where all the 125,000 people that come to our, our youth fair can see it. We're to arrest the attention of the people. This is the God-filled good news that he's in charge and there's going to be a stone kingdom where he's going to be the king, not Nebuchadnezzar. It would be sad if you weren't part of the orchestra. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be here. Better bonded to every other single person that's here. Friends, we pray here on Wednesday night. That's the main thing we do. We sing, we pray, and we have little sharing. But starting on Wednesday night, the 14th, we're going deep in. And I'm waiting for a testimony of what God's going to do from preposition, if, to composition, the composing of the best music heaven has ever written for this community, for your life, and for our church. May God help us all, and may we fill our chair in the orchestra of God. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.